It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been standing way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. How are you? Very good. Hello. And, of course, the man of the hour, Ralph Nader, is with us. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Action, November 8th time. All right. We have another great show for you today. And we're going to start with one of my favorite guests who's been on the show before. Many journalists and pundits cover war from a safe distance in a clean studio. Few have experienced the gritty reality of war like Chris Hedges. He spent nearly 20 years overseas as a correspondent for The New York Times, getting to know war up close and personal. He wrote eloquently about it in his award-winning War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, where he states, quote, the rush of battle is a potent and often lethal addiction, for war is a drug, one I ingested for many years, unquote. Today, the war in Ukraine is raging. Establishment news outlets offer up generals and State Department officials to tell us the partisan, political, and strategic story of war that seems only to fuel that addiction and keep us rooting for, quote-unquote, our team. In contrast, Hedges has written another book about the subject titled War is the Greatest Evil. In this new book, Hedges draws on his firsthand experience to tell us the story of the hidden costs of war and what it does to individuals, families, communities, and nations. We look forward to talking to Chris about how we, as a society and as individuals, can possibly overcome this ultimately destructive addiction. In the second half of the program, we'll turn to the midterm elections. This November, most voters will end up choosing between a Democrat and a Republican for Senate, House, state, and local seats. The GOP is arguably the worst it's ever been. Serially corrupt, anti-labor, violence-prone, and reliably authoritarian. So why aren't Democrats on the offensive? This summer, Mark Green and Ralph assembled prominent progressive advocates, strategists, and civic leaders for Winning America 2022, a virtual briefing on smart policies and messaging for Democratic candidates. Mark will join us today to give an update on the Winning America digital resources. He and Ralph will explain how candidates can run on a platform that champions Democratic populism and refutes dangerous extremists and corporate abuse. And as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's talk to Chris Hedges about the evils of war. David? Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He's the host of The Chris Hedges Report, and he is a prolific author. His latest book is out now from Seven Stories Press, The Greatest Evil is War. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Chris Hedges. Thank you. Welcome back indeed, Chris. I see this book of yours as a sequel, update, and expansion in terms of its impact of Marine General Smedley Butler's book in the late 1930s called War is a Racket, which people are still reading. And he got the Congressional Medal of Honor twice, and he basically said, He was a tool for Citibank, for the oil companies in the Caribbean, Central America, East Asia. It's one of the greatest confessions, and he had some photographs at the end of the book on the grisly effects of war. So he didn't spare either words or visuals. And your book is 
an expansion of that theme. And as I said to you earlier before the program, Chris, I want our listeners to know that there's no way to paraphrase what Chris has written. So I've asked Chris to read two and a half pages at the beginning of his book, The Greatest Evil is War, and then we can discuss the book and its impact. And I have some interesting comparisons for you listeners to show that ultimately the problem is that the people of this country are not applying their value systems into the realm of politics and economics. Go ahead, Chris. Thanks, Ralph. Preemptive war, whether in Iraq or Ukraine, is a war crime. It does not matter if the war is launched on the basis of lies and fabrications, as was the case in Iraq, or because of the breaking of a series of agreements with Russia, including the promise by Washington not to extend NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, not to deploy thousands of NATO troops in Central and Eastern Europe, and not to meddle in the internal affairs of nations on Russia's border, as well as the refusal to implement the Minsk peace agreement. The invasion of Ukraine would, I expect, never have happened if these promises had been kept. Russia has every right to feel threatened, betrayed, and angry. But to understand is not to condone. The invasion of Ukraine under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression. I know the instrument of war. War is not politics by other means. It is demonic. I spent two decades as a war correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans, where I covered the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo. I carry within me the ghosts of dozens of those swallowed up in the violence, including my close friend, Reuters correspondent Kurt Schork, who was killed in an ambush in Sierra Leone with another friend, Miguel Gil Moreno de Mora. I know the chaos and disorientation of war, the constant uncertainty and confusion. In a firefight, you are only aware of what is happening a few feet around you. You desperately and not always successfully struggle to figure out where the firing is coming from to avoid being hit. I have felt the helplessness and paralyzing fear which, years later, descend on me like a freight train in the middle of the night, leaving me wrapped in coils of terror, my heart racing, my body dripping with sweat. I have heard the wails of those convulsed by grief as they clutch the bodies of friends and family, including children. I hear them still. It does not matter the language, Spanish, Arabic, Hebrew, Dinka, Serbo-Croatian, Albanian, Ukrainian, Russian. Death cuts through the linguistic barriers. I know what wounds look like, legs blown off, heads imploded into a bloody, pulpy mass, gaping holes in stomachs, pools of blood, cries of the dying, sometimes for their mothers, and the smell, the smell of death, the supreme sacrifice made for flies and maggots. I was beaten by Iraqi and Saudi secret police. I was taken prisoner by the Contras in Nicaragua, who radioed back to their base in Honduras to see if they should kill me, and again in Basra, after the first Gulf War in Iraq, never knowing if I would be executed, under constant guard, and often without food, drinking out of mud puddles. The primary lesson in war is that we as distinct individuals do not matter. 
We become numbers, fodder, objects. Life, once precious and sacred, becomes meaningless, sacrificed to the insatiable appetite of Mars. No one in wartime is exempt. The landscape of war is hallucinogenic. Eugene Sledge calls it the kaleidoscope of the unreal. It defies comprehension. War, like the Holocaust, as Barbara Foley wrote, is unknowable. Its full dimensions are inaccessible to the ideological framework that we have inherited from the liberal era. You have no concept of time in a firefight, a few minutes, a few hours. War in an instant obliterates homes and communities, all that was once familiar, and leaves behind smoldering ruins and a trauma that you carry for the rest of your life. I have tasted enough of war, enough of my own fear, my body turned to jelly, to know that war is always evil, the purest expression of death, dressed up in patriotic cant about liberty and democracy, and sold to the naive as a ticket to glory, honor, and courage. It is a toxic and seductive elixir. Those who survive, as Kurt Vonnegut wrote, struggle afterwards to reinvent themselves and their universe, which on some level will never make sense again. Walt Whitman, who tended wounded soldiers in hospitals during the Civil War, wrote in a heading in his notebook, the real war will never get in the books. Its interior history will not only never be written, Whitman argues, its practicality, minutia of deeds and passions, will never be even suggested. Listeners, I just want to give you some comparisons here. This book came out, Seven Stories Press. But they do use Random House as a distributor, so they can get into all the bookstores if there are orders, and they can get into all the online vendors as well. A book that came out in 2012 and 2013 called American Sniper, which is a book by a expert sniper for the U.S. military in Iraq, and it was turned into a movie. And 10 years later, on Amazon, it ranks ahead of Chris Hedge's book. This is just an example that bloodthirsty military action books sell far more than books that challenge the grisly evil and crimes of war. It's books of aggression, violence, military prowess that gain the bestseller list. You've analyzed the public attitudes on this, and thought about it. Why do you think this is so? It's so contrary to the survival instinct of human beings. Because those books are a celebration of us as a people, as a nation, and challenging that self-exaltation, which books like mine do, is unpleasant because it forces us to ask questions about ourselves and our nation that are deeply troubling and uncomfortable and people prefer the self-adulation, the self-adulatory myths. This is what every war movie that Hollywood makes, Saving Private Ryan, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. They prefer that self-adulation because in the end, it's really a celebration of us. I think that's why. Do you think it's also that the warlike forces in our society have seized the symbols of patriotism? They've seized the flag. They've seized the anthems. They've seized the awards. There's a Congressional Medal of Honor for 
soldiers involved in war is not a Congressional Medal of Honor for the peacemakers, the conflict avoiders. And once they control that meaning of patriotism, it becomes an intimidating factor. And people who otherwise would step up and speak out are afraid to go against that symbol with all its holidays and all its marching bands, etc., for fear of being accused of unpatriotic behavior or worse. Anything to that? Yes. I mean, I think in any militaristic society, that's exactly what happens. So even Robert E. Lee, who was a traitor fighting for one of the worst causes that any war ever embraced, has full portrait in a Confederate uniform is hanging in the library in West Point. And not to mention the fact that there are all sorts of parts of West Point that are named after him. So it is a celebration of those martial qualities, which you're right, are fused with the idea of patriotism. I mean, what is a patriot? A patriot, I would argue, is someone who works to make the country a better place, which would preclude a figure like Robert E. Lee and probably, you know, all sorts of other military figures as well. You know, Martin Luther King would be, in my mind, a patriot, but that's a different definition of patriotism. So much of this lies, this hijacking of the iconography and symbols and language of the nation and the highest form of patriotism. Much of it lies with the media and, of course, with the entertainment industry. And it's very hard to fight against. Yeah. Well, there are veterans for peace and Iraq veterans that are trying to do their bit. But it starts in the schools, too. It starts right in the first grade. Right. Exactly. That's right. This book is very hard to describe, listeners, because it has a diverse impact in its contents. It's not just a one-note type book symbolized by its title, The Greatest Evil is War. We're speaking with Chris Hedges. Chris, it is true historically, is it not, that militaristic societies eventually devour themselves, like Sparta? Well, or like the Athenian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, every empire ultimately devours itself. And historians like Arnold Tomby argue that the prime reason that empires disembowel themselves is unchecked militarism. I studied classics. That was certainly true in Rome. At one million man army, the end, the Praetorian Guard was auctioning off the position of emperor to the highest bidder. Not much, we're not too far away from that ourselves. The Pentagon is totally out of control. It hasn't even been audited for, I think, for a decade. Every year it gets more money, sometimes it even asked for, and it's consuming such, not only consuming tremendous amounts of resources. I mean, technically it's half of all discretionary spending, but when you add other programs, veteran affairs, uh, nuclear and everything else, it's much more than that. And, of course, it's prosecuting one military debacle after another, going all the way back to Vietnam, and they're never held accountable. So that is traditionally how empires were one of the major factors. I mean, depletion of natural resources, of course, is often another, but that unchecked militarism is cancerous to a civilization, and it overreaches in the end. So as it decays, as we have decayed, it engages in more forms of military adventurism in an attempt to reclaim a lost hegemony and a lost glory and a lost power. I mean, this is certainly true in Athens and the disastrous invasion of Sicily. I think their whole fleet was sunk. So we are following that very familiar 
trajectory. This is why Karl Leibniz, a socialist German leader in World War I, quite astutely called the German military the enemy from within. And I would argue that that's an appropriate way to characterize the military industrial establishment in the United States. It's certainly drawn trillions of dollars over the years, trillions and trillions of dollars from the necessities of our domestic society, from the public works, the infrastructure, the schools, the public transit, the community health clinics, the public libraries, bridges, highways, soil conservation, the whole pollution control investment, now climate disruption, and foreseen pandemics, which we have starved the budgets of both the CDC and the World Health Organization. And I think a lot of our listeners may not know that the main reason we didn't get universal health insurance under Lyndon Johnson and got Medicare and limited Medicaid was because of the money we were spending on the Vietnam War, which was a criminal war of aggression as well, and never declared by the Congress. What, Chris, would you like to highlight before we conclude? And we really would like another program more extensively, because I know we're going to get a tremendous reaction from our listeners. What points would you like to make briefly? I would highlight the chapter of the pimps of war, because this is this coterie of groups and individuals and I dealt with them all the way back covering, I covered the war in El Salvador for five years. Elliot Abrams and Robert Kagan worked for Abrams in the State Department under the Reagan administration. And their job was really to just attempt to discredit all of our reporting on the ground because the Salvadoran death squads run out of three different military units run by the government were killing between 700 and 1,000 people a month, innocent, unarmed civilians. So the war industry has perpetuated these people. It doesn't matter how many times they're wrong. They're wrong about Iraq, wrong about Libya, wrong about Afghanistan. And their think tanks, Project for the New American Century, American Enterprise Institute, Foreign Policy Initiative, Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, Brookings Institutions. It's kind of like this mutant strain of an antibiotic resistant bacteria we can't get rid of. And these people are on the airwaves. They were the people who sold us the war in Iraq, which alone should discredit anything they have to say about Ukraine. They are incredibly cavalier about the possibility of nuclear war, which they all acknowledge. I think Brennan the other day said there's now one in 25% chance of nuclear conflict that all of these people, Kagan, William Crystal, and others. And what's interesting is that both parties are war parties. What's cruelly paradoxical is you were an award-winning military correspondent and reporter on other subjects for the New York Times for over 20 years. And you can't get into the New York Times op-ed page. And your book, The Greatest Evil is War, I don't believe was reviewed by the New York Times book section. On the other hand, the consummate admitted warmonger, John Bolton, who was for a limited amount of time the security advisor on terrorism to Donald Trump, he wrote a book which, by the way, said that obstruction of justice was a way of life in the Trump White House. Obstruction of justice is a serious crime. He wrote a book. It was reviewed in the New York Times. And he gets in op-eds in the New York Times and Washington Post. And he just admitted very recently that 
You know, he's advocated coup d'etats. He advocated the bombing of North Korea, the toppling of Iranian regime by military means. A Yale Law graduate who doesn't know about the constitutional restraints on wars that are not declared by the Congress, not to mention other international law illegalities. How do you explain that? Well, having worked at the New York Times, it is a newspaper that will cater obsequiously to the centers of power and is extremely reticent about challenging those centers. It may critique the excesses of power, but it will never critique the virtues of power. And so if, as a writer such as myself, goes after the structural injustices and inequities, which include the rise of the military state, then you crossed a line they're very hesitant to embrace because of the blowback. So there's no blowback for being nice to John Bolton. There's quite a bit of blowback for, I mean, you're virtually banned from the Times. When I worked at the Times, they wouldn't even put Chomsky's name in the newspaper. It was not written on a wall. It wasn't a rule, but everybody knew, even if it was about linguistics. So there's a very insidious form of censorship. The war industry is a large advertiser, especially on the television networks. And so who do you see talking about war? It's always former intelligence officials, Brennan, Clapper, uh, former generals. And let's not forget, these people, although it's not disclosed, are sitting on the boards of companies like Raytheon raking in lots of money. I mean, they have a vest mm-hmm. of kind of personal interest in perpetuating war because they make money off of it. Butler pointed that out. Yeah, one of the only deviations from the blackout of Noam Chomsky by the New York Times was a recent lengthy interview by Ezra Klein of the New York Times on his podcast. He had Noam Chomsky on for an hour. Last question is, how do you get people to impress upon their senators and representatives? Because it's all the peace movement has got to begin turning Congress around. And that's where the appropriation funds, that's where the neglect of saying there's going to be no war without a declaration from Congress comes from. How do you get them to focus on their senators and representatives? They're back home now. They're shaking hands. They're going to events prior to the November election. This is a good time to get to them. And we have a Congress club with several hundred members who are supposed to be even more keen on impressing the many issues on this program on their two senators and representatives. How would you arouse them even more about focusing on those 535 members who represent and control the sovereign power delegated to them by the people and who so often have turned this sovereign power against the very people themselves? Let's say you were on a stump and you had one or two minutes to convey a motivational expression. Well, the Democrats have to be held accountable because they are culpable. And I think we saw tremendous opposition to the Iraq war, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. It wasn't particularly well covered, but they were there. And then to elect Kerry, who kind of out fallujahed George Bush, remember saluting, he wouldn't have withdrawn. Everybody stopped standing up against the war industry because they thought electing Kerry would somehow make things better. A Democratic administration's are wholly in lockstep with the Republicans on militarism, in some cases even worse because they provide more cover. We've given $50 billion, I think is the amount now, to Ukraine. I mean, the whole State Department budget is only $60 billion. 
and not to mention how that's about five times what we give to the EPA. So we have to hold those who prosecute permanent war, Democrat or Republican, accountable. And I think that by surrendering to a Democratic administration in the idea that it's the least worst, we weaken our power and our credibility. Not to mention inadequate budgets to head off future pandemics and to deal with the present COVID-19 pandemic. That Congress has sat on, mostly the Republican opposition, I might add. So, well, listen, we've been talking with Chris Hedges, author of this concise, pulsating, fact-based book, The Greatest Evil is War. The Greatest Evil is War by Seven Stories Press. Start discussions around it in the neighborhood. Listeners, send copies to your library and schools. It's a readable book. It's not huge. It can be read in a few hours, and it will never put anybody to drowsiness. What's Dang. the best way to reach you? ChrisHedges.substack.com. That's ChrisHedges.substack.com. And you also go around and you deliver speeches to various groups in the U.S. and Canada, and they're always very, very well attended. So keep doing what you're doing, Chris, and to be continued. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Ralph. We've been speaking with Chris Hedges. We will link to his book, The Greatest Evil is War, at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. Up next, Mark Green joins Ralph to share winning strategies for Democrats. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, October 28, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Cosmetics company L'Oreal is being sued over claims that its chemical hair straightening products put women at increased risk of uterine cancer. That's according to a report from CNN. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump filed a lawsuit last week in Illinois on behalf of a 32-year-old Missouri resident, Jenny Mitchell, claiming that Mitchell's uterine cancer was directly and proximately caused by her regular and prolonged exposure to phthalates and other endocrine-disrupting chemicals found in defendants' hair care products. As most young African-American girls, chemical relaxers, chemical straighteners were introduced to us at a young age, Mitchell said. Society has made it a norm to look a certain way in order to feel a certain way, and I am the first voice of many voices to come that will stand up to those companies and say no more. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. Our next guest is going to talk to Ralph about how Democrats can mount a winning platform this November. David? Mark Green is a former Nader's Raider who ran Public Citizens Congress Watch for 10 years and was elected New York City's first public advocate. He is a prolific author and has collaborated with Ralph on Fake President, Decoding Trump's Gaslighting, Corruption, and General Bullshit, and Wrecking America, How Trump's Law-Breaking and Lies Betray All. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Mark Green. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted you asked me back. I passed the test, apparently. And thank you, Ralph, for having me here. Yeah, welcome back, Mark. You know, over the last seven or eight months, you've been hard at work with me to create something called winningamerica.net with some 24 civic leaders and advocates. Can you tell our energetic listeners what's this all about? 
Well, Mouth thought up, and then we started collaborating in February, based on a few premises. One is Democrats seem to have given up. They said, yeah, there's going to be a red wave, which is self-defeating. You don't just surrender before the first shot. Second, we were approaching a almost culminating battle between democracy and autocracy, but Democrats didn't seem that alarmed by it. They were too complacent. Third, while Democrats, you know, in my view, I'm a lifelong Democrat, have by far the best policies for families in the last year, in the last hundred years, somehow right-wing Republicans were having winning messages for these five-second voters, woke, cancel, grooming, you name it. That was an irony that was intolerable. And finally, I've been a candidate a lot. Candidates are in their own silos. They don't listen to allies often, so busy raising money. And so Ralph and I recruited 25 or so of the best public advocates and civic leaders in the country to give their advice and language and policy to candidates. Not that we know better, but no one knows more than everyone. And we wanted to plug in in that way. But unfortunately, although there are so many major redirections, changes, reforms that the Democrats could use. For whatever reason, the media attention span, the Republican strategists, it's coming down in the last 10 days to three issues. Inflation, crime, by which they mean, the Republicans mean street crime, not corporate crime, and abortion. Let's take your cue on this. How would you throw it back on the Republicans on inflation, and then we'll go to crime and the abortion issue. Sure. I would add simply a fourth, which is they're trying to shred democracy, reduce voting, which is why we're losing on money issues in the hill like minimum wage and child tax credit. So first, market-driven prices are too high, but democracy is priceless. And when we talk about inflation, candidates have to put it in the right context, which sounds defensive, but it's one sentence. Yeah, inflation is high because of worldwide inflation, and we're doing better than other Western countries, and because of price gouging by corporations with market power. Congresswoman Katie Porter said half of the inflation is due to monopolistic practices. Of course, the pandemic, supply chains, and of course, Putin's war in the Ukraine. And we have to put the blame where it is deserved And always compare the economies of Trump and Biden. Scientifically, they're the best we got in terms of coming to an economic solution. And this is like comparing the Houston Astros and AAA team. Biden's economy and his smart spending on social programs has taken us out of Trump's deep recession, costing trillions of dollars and millions of jobs. And Trump ended up as the first president since Hoover, to preside over an economy with fewer jobs than he began. And Biden has had record job growth per month. Now, the Democrats, Ralph, made a rhetorical mistake. They're too cautious. They're too shy. We have too many Chris Coons and not enough Elizabeth Warrens. And so they haven't fought back, fearing that by talking about inflation, it's their issue. Well, nothing can't beat something. You got to stay on the offensive and propose why they caused the inflation. They're wrong. And our economics can reduce 
prices and reduce costs. And Biden and the Congress's Inflation Reduction Act has reduced, is reducing the cost of drugs, energy, health premiums, for example. And the Republicans are blocking all of it. So we have to contextualize inflation and then turn and pivot and blame those who are causing it and those who Pete Buttigieg on Stephen Colbert this week said, can anyone name five things Republicans want to do about inflation other than talk about it? Three things? One thing? That's right. Yeah. I would add the U.S. government doesn't sell autos, gasoline, drugs, food. (laughs) Corporations do. They're the ones that set the price. And Republicans, if you want to do something about that, you want to do wage price controls, that throws the Republicans on the defensive. Let's go to the crime issue. They never talk about the distinction between street crime and corporate crime. Corporate crime taking far more lives, far more disease, far more injuries, and, of course, far more billions of dollars in corporate crime fraud than even street crime. So tell us about what the Democrats should respond to this. They seem to be like a deer in headlights. Well, if you're in a a debate and you don't have 20 minutes on the Ralph Nader hour and you have to answer, a quick answer is there's a bump up in the murder rates, but the party behind January 6th violence, apologists for the 139 cops who suffered at the hands of this Trump mob, the party who refuses really strong gun measures while AR-15s slaughter children. They're the last people to talk credibly about crime because they contribute to it. Your point about corporate crime is perfect. I am afraid that a lot of Democrats are worried that talking about that too much may hurt their fundraising. But even if they felt that, but they don't say it, it's two weeks to go. You got to tell the truth. Now, crime is always an issue. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. When any party is losing an election, they just start waving the bloody shirt and you can't stop them in a sense. But from 1980 to now, all crime has fallen by two thirds. And that doesn't satisfy anybody who's afraid to go out now. And so you put it in a historic context, explain and blame Republicans, and then show how our programs on community policing and guns and funding police departments more, not necessarily more cops, but with more programs to handle the mentally ill, is a way of being negative and positive. Even more, the latest data shows that by far there are higher homicide and other violent crimes in states controlled by Republican governors and Republican legislatures. They don't want to mention that. Ralph, you're exactly right. In the Oklahoma gubernatorial debate this week, the Democrat said that crime rates in Oklahoma under you, Mr. Incumbent, are much worse than New York City. He laughed. The Republicans in the audience laughed because I challenged their stereotype and shibboleth. In fact... Eight of the 10 states with the highest murder rates have red governors and are red states. This contradicts their slick assertions, but they have to take responsibility for the crime that, at least empirically, is higher there. 
Let's go to reproductive rights. Well, as a moral and legal issue, the Dobbs decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade is a moral and it attacks women's autonomy and control of themselves. Politically, uh, let me add, it has affected, as it should, millions of families and millions of women who now can't family plan when you don't know when you can, if necessary, have an abortion. It's hard to make economic and family decisions. The Democrats are advertising on their support of Roe v. Wade, which is two votes short in the Senate of being enacted by legislation, because this Supreme Court won't change its mind. But they have to be more vivid. Look, the following is not pretty, Ralph. But since they, Republicans, are campaigning with the finesse of Russian foot soldiers, Democrats have to hit back. And there should be ads, maybe not with the exact name of the victim, but a woman in Idaho wanted an abortion. She was 14 years old. She couldn't get one. Her doctor hesitated, and she died. And that's because of the Republican murderous policies when it comes to helping people after they're born in social programs and before if they can't carry the term. And so this is Handmaid's Tale. They are forcing girls and women to carry a thing in them a potential child, because Amy Comey Barrett said, well, we need more babies for adoption. I mean, that's something that's straight out of 1984 and George Orwell. As has been said, Mark, we're talking with Mark Green, former public advocate for New York City, author of many books, corporate critic. As has been said many times, the Republican pro-life stops at birth. And so they don't care about neonatal care. They don't care about nutritional requirements. They don't care about using available Medicaid funds to give health insurance to kids. They don't care about paid family leave and sick leave and daycare. So they're probably vulnerable on the children issue, which is a left-right issue. I mean, parents of children reverberate to the critique, I think, of the Republicans' assault on children, and Ralph, not to Ralph. mention climate violence and what's what the Republicans are doing day after day, not to protect children and the country and the planet from uh, the fossil fuel-generated climate violence. Ralph, since we're in the final two weeks, although the Republicans have been lying about these issues for decades with Fox amplifying them, we have to make choices. And so we have discussed how undermining voting and democracy hurts economically families, like when it comes to minimum wage and uh, child tax credits. And second, how we have to turn around the crime and inflation issues. Third, though, is very simply Social Security and Medicare. People understand that. They don't have to be educated. And if we, if Democratic candidates, especially the White House, as Biden finally has started doing this week, say you've been paying in for Social Security and Medicare and they want to cut it, threaten to wreck the economy by not raising the debt limit when it comes up, for some, a benefit that you've been paying into the government for years. And so if you want to protect your Social Security and Medicare, you have to vote for the party that created it, not the party who wants to end it. You've run a lot of campaigns. You've run as a candidate, Mark Green. Tell us about all-night campaigning, which members of Congress who are in close races 
like Tim Ryan in Ohio and Katie Porter in California and others should listen very carefully in the next few days to get out certain kinds of votes. Tell us about midnight campaigning and how it went when you were running for mayor of New York City. Well, if I don't want to embarrass him, but Ralph gave me the idea of as a actual but symbolic way to connect to all the people who are the silent supporters of our economy and society. They work all night at diners and hospitals, at transportation hubs. And so if you campaign all night, which I did one night, and I took along a bus of people who were friends, supporters, union heads, A, it's exhilarating you know how when you're working hard late at night, you kind of get a shot of adrenaline. I hope you do. And B, it could speak to all those other workers who don't work all night, but want a candidate who's on their side, not just in rhetoric about culture wars, but is committed to doing it. Now, a candidate may say, oh, my God, I'd be so tired. Let me assure you that it's more exciting than tiring. And for one time in the campaign, if you have to hit the sack at 7 a.m. and sleep till 1 your campaign will go on without you for that time. But you would have made, in a very dramatic way, this point. Yeah, there are over 20 million workers in this country who work the midnight shift. They never see a candidate. They feel excluded. And putting out a press release, recognizing their contributions, and then campaigning throughout the night, it's easy. And Democrats in close races or not close races should respect these people and devote one night to all night campaigning. So listen, if you know any of the candidates, it could be state, local, national, give them that idea. It's a good one. Let's get to the most serious problem that Republicans confront. They are destroying democratic practices from elections to getting rid of health and safety regulations to shutting up the people who want access to justice, want access to their government, and who want to voice their concerns. This is a autocratic party And you've written one of the best books I've ever read called Losing Our Democracy some years ago. What would you say on this if you were Democratic candidates in the last few days of the campaign? Well, thank you for mentioning that. I wrote Losing Our Democracy in 2004 and showing how the rules of the Senate, the filibuster, the two senators per state compared California and Wyoming, and then political action committee money, and now dark money. All of this has been happening and worsening because Mitch McConnell wants to rake in the money. He doesn't care about uh, democracy. And because this Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision a, a few years ago under Justice Roberts, said, well, money is speech. And so we don't want to limit spending. Money isn't speech. I mean, I could, if I say, hey, here's a bribe, well, that's speech, but it should be sanctioned. Look, they want to, in effect, end our democracy by reducing voting. They claim, oh, that's because of voting fraud. Well, the fraud are Republicans. Those are the only people this year who have been caught trying to vote twice and three times, like the people in the villages, it's so-called, in Florida. And they, the Republicans, are not subtle, as I've said. And they throw out these slanders about AOC and Bernie Sanders, oh, they're communists. They're murderers because of their pro-life stance. 
Well, we have to not say no or not. Those are ridiculous charges. But we have to meet strength through strength. They are killing women by denying them safe abortions. And they are neo-fascists. What does that mean? Well, Mussolini had his black shirts. Trump has Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. He is militarizing his radical base by saying, hey, stand by, by inciting the January 6th riot and then trying to overturn the government. Last, they are extreme. Democrats are mainstream. And if they yell about that and they are called what they are, if they call Democrats communists, which is a lie, the least we can do is tell the truth about them being neo-fascists. If you look at the MAGA mobs, both physically and online and by phone when they threaten local officials who are quitting in droves, that's fascistic. And if you don't like Biden's proposal, it's not big enough on student loans, forget about it. Don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. The enemy is them who want to end the 246-year experiment called constitutional democracy. That's what's radical, not the party that wants to help struggling families. But as you pointed out, Mark, Eisenhower, Senator Robert Taft, even Reagan would be appalled at what the Republicans are up to. I mean, (laughs) we haven't even touched the surface of their designs for the country. And the repudiation of the right to vote by certain people, not counting the votes, purging the votes, threatening the volunteer precinct workers, as you said. And, of course, they've out-gerrymandered the Democrats. They just have more energy and the redistricting fight in these very states where they pick the voters. The voters don't pick them. To summarize, if I could, extremists, dangerous extremists, are trying to steal our votes and our wallets. You have to get in both the destroying democracy and that economically hurts our families. And so at the level of rhetoric, Republicans always say when they're challenged on race, oh, we're the party of Lincoln. Democrats today, if you look at Lincoln's record, of course, on civil rights, infrastructure spending, the rule of law, Democrats are the party of Lincoln, not Republicans. Trump's GOP, they want to be lawmakers to break the law and violate the Constitution and crush our democracy and put the plutocrats in charge. Behind all these Trumpsters is the corporate state, Wall Street over Washington, turning the government against its own people. David, Steve. Yes, Mark and Ralph, we have a question here from a listener, Elizabeth Axtell. She's a regular listener. And she asks, why aren't the Democrats fighting harder? What are they for? In a recent article in Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn writes, quote, ever since Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, Democratic Party leadership has made it abundantly clear that eliminating the leftist insurgency is perhaps its highest priority, unquote. Is the Democratic Party leadership really interested in winning or maintaining control of the party, she asks. Well, I assure you that Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, as much as any of us, want, of course, Democrats to win and to stop these fascists called Republicans. So what's going wrong? Joe Biden got famous and president over four decades by being a kind of bipartisan kumbaya unifier. It's not his natural skill. 
to punch back at Republicans over his, the course of his career. And finally, with two weeks to go, which is pretty late, but still in time, he is hitting back on Social Security and soon inflation. Second, where's Kamala Harris? Nice person, smart person, successful. I haven't heard one word from her. You know, he used to be that vice president, remember, with the Bob Dole types who would take on the other party. Uh, she's nowhere. Third, when people glibly say, oh, MSNBC, it's just a liberal Fox. <laughs> Maybe I wish it were. Fox amplifies the lies and are penetrating the right-wing psychology of this cult called Trump and that we don't have a comparable bullhorn. And so we're going to have to use our strength against their strength before it's too late. Well, you know, for that matter, where's the AFL-CIO? We haven't heard much from organized labor in the unions, and we've tried to get the head of the AFL-CIO on the program. She denied our invitation. You know, it is true. The other side is more messianic. They have higher energy levels than the liberal Democratic side. It's almost funny, but Robert Frost wrote, a liberal is someone who won't take his own side in a debate. And that kind of calm response does not meet this moment of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Newt Gingrich. David? Hi, Mark. Ralph has said countless times on the show that the Democratic Party's message should be, give yourself a, a wage, vote yourself a raise, vote yourself a raise. And over the weekend, I was Googling the word used most when it comes to the midterms, and it's wages. It's not abortion, not inflation, not Ukraine. American voters care about wages. It's been 13 years since the minimum wage has been raised. The minimum wage is $7.25. It hasn't been raised since 2009. Biden promised to raise it. He didn't. So essentially, the minimum wage doesn't exist anymore. The Democrats, through an action, got rid of it. And am I wrong to be utterly convinced that if the Dems ran on giving Americans a raise, they would win every election cycle in a landslide, that in the end, all this divisiveness would mean nothing if they delivered on raising the minimum wage and raising voters' salaries? Well, that success would be not just a talking point. You can run on it as FDR ran against Hoover Amos. But may I disagree with you when you said the phrase, Biden hasn't gotten us this raise in the minimum. Of course, he wants a raise. I think he's said to twelve fifty or $15 an hour. It's the Republicans uh, who are blocking him. But let me turn to Ralph, who, let me say at the risk of embarrassing you, for a decade, Ralph has been yelling privately at candidates, why don't you talk about the minimum wage? The other side wants to abolish it, if not reduce it. It's a winning issue when it's their referendum on raising your well-earned pay. It always passes. Ralph, why don't you, since you've pioneered on yeah. this. David is right. It appeals to all voters. There are referendums, two in Florida to raise the minimum wage, which won big against huge TV ads by the fast food industry and people like Walmart. There was a referendum some years ago in Arkansas to raise the minimum wage. It won big. Texas is ripe for it if O'Rourke makes it an issue. But it's quite baffling that the Democrats don't talk about this again and again. Recently, they passed it in the House, and of course it was blocked in the Senate because of the filibuster by the Republicans. 
But they should talk minimum wage, $15. That's, that's over 20 million workers would get a higher wage and put more food on the table. It's very frustrating for citizen groups on the outside to watch the Democratic Party not use all the arguments that they have for whatever inhibiting reasons they may have, as pointed out recently in a page one story in the New York Times. Steve? What has the response from party leaders or anybody in the party been to your proposals and your ways of countering the GOP? Well, the project at the start was endorsed by very prominent elected Democrats, Jamie Raskin, John Larson from Connecticut, Ralph's own district, Hakeem Jeffries of Brooklyn, the likely next Speaker of the House, depending on how things go. Senator Ed Markey and others said, this is what we need. Second, the Democratic National Committee, which is rhetorically in the backwoods, they don't come up with much and they should, they sent it, the full 80 page, 36,000 page report to all its candidates online and in print. And so I have seen phrases we've used now start coming up in campaigns. So we're not looking for credit. We're just looking to get through to candidates. Not that we know better, but we know something. And they have to grab every idea from their natural base, which are advocates and civic leaders who may say something that they haven't thought of as they frantically money raise. The report is winningamerica.net. It's going to be good for 2024. It's the voice of civic advocates who know how to talk to all the people, all the workers, all the patients, all the consumers. They don't just talk to liberal workers or conservative workers. And they need to have a voice. They need to have an impact on the electoral system. And Mark has worked so hard on this. So tell your people, listeners, to go to winningamerica.net. There's a long form, a short form, even there's a two-page form if you want to forward it to whoever you think can use it. Thank you very much, Mark Green. Let's hope that our listeners spread the word and get more people to the polls. Otherwise, it could be a very grim evening on November 8th. Thanks, Ralph, for your leadership over time and your leadership on winningamerica.net. I've lost elections. You can lose an election. What's worse is to self-defeat. And if Democrats bellyache rather than pulling their friends and relatives to the polls and then having lunch after, having dinner after. So it's a community event. It's a cliche, but if all voters turn out 50% or more, which is what happened in 2018, Democrats win. If it's the traditional 37%, Republicans may win. The only way at the end that candidates and the public will pay attention with this avalanche of information hitting them paid and free is for the president to take the lead. He will get covered. He will get mimicked. And he's starting to change from his appealing temperament of being a calm and personable to find his inner Harry Truman. We're out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much, Mark, for your work and your contribution for winningamerica.net. Thank you, Ralph, for including me and speaking to you and the country. We've been speaking with Mark Green. We have a link to Winning America at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. So, Ralph, before we close, let's put in a plug for a Tort Law Education Day. Tell us about that. This is an easy one. Virtually, listeners, if you and people you know want a short course on tort law, you can't do better than logging in to tortmuseum.org. 
It's going to occur on Saturday, October 29th, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, with very concise and engrossing presentations by two prominent practitioners of tort law, two scholars of tort law, and I'll wind it up at the conclusion. You can do it wherever you are. It's tortmuseum.org, Saturday, October 29th. The law of wrongful injury affects everybody one way or the other, and it's good to know what your rights are when that occurs. That's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Chris Hedges and Mark Green. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now. But for you podcast listeners, stay tuned. We've got a lot of bonus material, and it's called The Wrap-Up. The transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. And Saturday, October 29th, is Tort Law Day. Visit tortmuseum.org to view the program, register for the free virtual event, and join Ralph for an afternoon of education and inspiration. That's at tortmuseum.org. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wentz. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. I'm only trying to school you. Listen to me, people. Do you understand we got to stand up? Oh, you've been sitting way too long.